You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. The book of John, chapter 7. We've been slowly making our way through this record of Jesus' life uh, that his, uh, one of his disciples, John, recorded for us uh, that's been passed down now to us, this record of Jesus. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 7. We'll start in verse 25, and we'll go to verse 36 today. That'll be where uh, we cut off, and we'll pick it back up next Sunday. We will take a week where we step out of the book of John on Easter, Resurrection Sunday, April 1st, but then we'll get back into it at least for the rest of this uh, school year. And then, um, but would encourage you to to have that open as we read it here in just a few minutes. Um, But... I was thinking this week of how, based on what we're going to be looking at from this text, of uh, some different doctrines, some things that Jesus himself is going to focus on in this conversation here. And I was thinking that when it comes to the core of Christianity, the core of the gospel, if you want to call it that, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus are the core of the core of the core of Christianity. That's why we have a cross up here. That's why, uh, we, and rightfully so, we emphasize week by week by week the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Because without that, we would be lost. We would be in our sins still. We would have no hope of forgiveness or resurrection ourselves. And rightfully so, and we will continue and always should continue to be seeing the cross and the resurrection of Jesus as central, as core to our faith. But what you see in this text that we're about to read is that even as Jesus himself was coming closer and closer to those things, to the cross, to his resurrection, there are other things he's seeking to teach. There's other things he's seeking to to rise up to the surface and either remind people of or tell them, for the first time, there's other things that he brings up as well. It's not just speaking exclusively of the cross and of the resurrection that was to come. And the two that we're going to see today uh, are two things. One we often talk about at Christmas time. The other we almost never talk about. Uh, but the, the two things we're going to see Jesus talking about is how he came into the world. So his incarnation, if you want to use a big theology word, how he came into the world. But then he's also going to talk about, and this is a preview of it because it hasn't happened yet in this story, about how he's going to go out of the world, how he's going to ascend back to be with God the Father. That's the one we rarely talk about in Christian circles. So those are the two things as we read through this text in a minute. We're going to see that Jesus is bringing to the surface in this conversation that he's in. He's bringing those two issues to bear on these people. And there are two that are important to us, that, that there are significant to us today. These aren't just ancient conversations that happen in Jerusalem with Jesus and some people that, that are recorded just for curiosity's sake, but they're things that the Lord would want to continue to teach us today. As people who are thousands of years removed, uh, we need to hear the same things. And so this, where we're about to pick up at is in the middle of a story that probably goes without saying. But uh, what's been happening, if you were here last Sunday, we saw that this is about six months or so before Jesus ultimately would get crucified, before he would be put to death. It's about six months before that. And what's been going on is that in the city of Jerusalem, there's this festival they would do once a year called the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. 
Tabernacles might be how your Bible translates it. And it was a big, kind of like a fall festival party after their harvest time, but they would live in tents, which I hate tent living. I probably would not have liked this thing, but uh, they, a lot of people come to Jerusalem and live in these tents outside of Jerusalem to remember the time long, long ago for them when God had rescued the Jewish people out of Egypt and had had them for a generation live in tents, live in these booths or tabernacles as he led them to the promised land. That is what they were remembering year by year. And Jesus had been, last time he'd been in Jerusalem, he had started to get death threats on his life. He had started to to have animosity building towards him. And so he'd been a little hesitant to go back to Jerusalem for this big feast. But he decided to, ultimately felt led by the Father to go, and he did. And last week we saw he started a conversation with people in the temple. He started teaching them there. And people were trying to shut him down. They were trying to undermine him and say, who's your rabbi, Jesus? And we saw Jesus kind of put them to shame and quieted them uh, last week. And then that's where we're going to pick up in the story. Is in the middle of this conversation in the temple, during the Feast of Booths, six months before Jesus is about to go to the cross. And so follow along with me in John chapter 7, verses 25 to 36. That's what we're going to read today. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What's he mean by saying, You'll seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So we'll hit pause there, and we'll pick back up uh, with verse 37 next Sunday. But uh, this passage is is pretty evenly divided in half. We see the first half is really Jesus talking about where he came from. Uh, You probably picked up on that as we read. But then the second half of what we read is him talking about where he's going to, uh, where ultimately even after his death, after his resurrection, what is going to happen to him after that. And so these are the two things, at least in this point in the conversation, Jesus is driving home is where he came from and where he's going. Uh, The coming of Jesus 
and the going of Jesus. And so we're going to start with the coming of Jesus, how he entered, how he, how he came. And so in this immediate context, before we talk about the bigger picture of how Jesus came into the world, I just want to remind you, this is taking place in Jerusalem, right? Uh, and there's these native people in Jerusalem. They're not part of the tent people. They actually live there, the people of Jerusalem. And they've probably heard that the authorities, the religious authorities, are wanting to kill Jesus. He's been in the city several times now and causing a stir. And they knew there's this Jesus guy that they're wanting to kill, that they're wanting to get rid of. And so they're perplexed that, that Jesus has actually come into Jerusalem again, that he's actually teaching openly, verse 26 says. They're surprised, saying, here he is speaking openly, and they're not saying anything to him. They're really perplexed by this, that Jesus has actually come back to Jerusalem. And now that he's here and he's teaching again, all these people who are talking a big game about arresting him and getting rid of him are doing nothing. They're, they're silent. They're, they're not um, take, trying to take him down. They're not seeking to take him out. And they're surprised by it. And they, but they, it's kind of like this water cooler talk. The first couple verses there, they would not have had water coolers, obviously, but the equi- ancient equivalent, uh, they're, they're saying, could it be, they're starting to suspect, huh, like could it be that since they're not actually coming after Jesus, maybe they're starting to believe he's the Messiah? Like could that be that he's the Christ? That's what verse 26 is saying. But they quickly dismiss that, and this is going to give rise to why Jesus starts talking about where he came from. Because they quickly dismiss the idea that, that Jesus could be the Messiah. Because in verse 27, they say, We know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And so this is something, this was a, a common belief, as best as we can tell in, in Jesus' day, that hadn't come directly from the Old Testament. It was just this idea that had started to circulate and be believed amongst Jewish people. Uh, of that day that whenever the messiah finally did come that the way it was going to happen was that he was going to go from relative being anonymous nobody really knowing at all who he was to boom like there's going to be some monumental thing and he was just going to start doing all his rescuing all his saving work he was going to go from no attention to all eyes on him he was going to go from not being known at all to just putting everything on display all at once. That was their expectation. And so as they, as they, as people who assume that, as they've heard about Jesus, they've known now for a couple years at least, Jesus has been slowly starting to, we saw at the start of John, he had no disciples, right? But slowly he started accumulating disciples, slowly people started to come listen to him, slowly people started to see the miracles that he could do, the things and the things that he could perform and the way that he would teach. And slowly Jesus started accumulating more people around him. And it was sort of this slow rise of Jesus. And as they see that happening, they think, there's no way. Like, that's not what the Messiah's arrival is going to be like. That, we know how he's come into the world. We know where he's from. We've, we know all his background. We know him. Like, we know where he's from. And that's not how the Christ is going to be. And that's why Jesus launches into this short discussion about and implying to them, do you really know where I'm from? Like you say you know my story and that it dismisses me as the Messiah, but do you really know where I'm from? That's what uh, verse 28, uh, Jesus is asking them that. Some of yours may 
uh, even put that as a question. Greek didn't have a question mark, so sometimes we don't know if it was a question or a sentence. So it, it could have been that Jesus was saying, you know me, and you know where I come from. And then he launches into telling him, this is where I really came from, if you really want to know my backstory and who I am. And I was thinking about this, that each of us answer the question of where we came from differently based on the situation, don't we? Like if you go to a conference, for example, or if you're like a freshman orientation at Grace or something like that, where there's people from all over the place, and you ask somebody, oh, where are you from? The way that they answer is where they have been living most recently, right? They say, like if I go to a conference and somebody asks me where I'm from, I try to explain where in the world Winona Lake is, and they don't know. But that's how I answer is where I'm from is where I live now. But if you meet somebody here in town, like let's say you meet somebody at the store, at your business, something like that, you meet them, and it's assumed we all live right around here, but you ask them, where are you from? Like they, they're going to answer that differently. They're going to say, oh, like I'm actually from such and such place originally. Like I grew up in Michigan. You might do the hand thing that Michigan people do or whatever. Uh, you say, that's where I'm from originally or I'm from this country or whatever. Like we answer a little bit further back in time of where we were from. Jesus has a whole different layer of this question that no human being has ever had to think about. Uh, that he, he could have answered, oh, I've, I've, I came from Galilee most recently. I've been doing some miracles up there, you know. Or he could have said, uh, I came from Nazareth. That's where I grew up. Or I came from Bethlehem. That's where I was born. But Jesus presses back into this reality that none of us can even comprehend, really, this reality that he actually came from heaven. Like, sometimes we think of little babies as, like, gifts from heaven. They're not from heaven. Like, they were conceived in the womb, and they were born in this, on this planet. But Jesus had an existence that he's wanting these people to know that predated his conception. That he had, been, he had come from heaven. He had come from God the Father. And if you see it summarized, really, I think, in verse 29. He's, he's talking about God, and he says, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And so he, he's telling, over and over in the Gospel of John, you see Jesus saying, me and the Father are one. We work hand in glove. We do everything together. I'm just doing what he tells me to do and what he shows me to do. And he's saying, I know him. We are close. But then he starts to say, I come from him. Like, I, am a, uh, I was sent, I used to physically be with him. That would have been mind-blowing for people to start to think about. And, it, and it's different from people who just say, oh, I'm a, there was prophets from the Old Testament who could have in some sense said, I was sent from God, or I, I speak on behalf of God. But Jesus literally means, I was with God, the Father. I was with him, and then he ends verse 29 by saying, he sent me. He sent me into this world. This isn't as if Jesus some night like a teenager slips out of the house while the parent's not looking and just kind of goes and does his own thing. The father is sending Jesus into the world. He wanted him to go. He commissioned him to go into the world to save us and to, to bring us forgiveness of sins. And so he's telling these people this. He's peeling back the curtain of his story of where he's really from. And the main point he want, is trying to drive home to them and that I think the Lord would want us to, to hear today is that we ought to listen to him. 
that these people were wanting to just dismiss Jesus. They wanted to just kind of push him to the side and just quickly dismiss him and say, we don't really need to listen to him. He's not the Messiah. There's no way. And Jesus is trying to shake them and wake them up and say, I was sent here by God. He sent me into this world and you're just going to brush me aside? You're just going to write me off like I'm some nobody or just some decent teacher who can get a crowd of people? I was sent by God and you better listen to me. And Jesus is trying to get their ears. He's trying to get their attention and, and get them to pay attention to what he has to say and what he is going to do. And so he, he's, that's why he presses into this story of where he's come from. And I find it fascinating that, that this, the, why, the scene that this is taking place in, this Feast of Booths, this Feast of Tabernacles. The tabernacles or booths were these tents. Do you remember that? That, that God's people had lived in as temporary housing back in the, the days of Moses as they waited to go into the promised land. This is fascinating that if, when you read the start of John's Gospel, John chapter 1 that we were back in several months ago, you may remember this, that John 1.14 says, talking about Jesus, it says that the Word, that's how it talks about him, the Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt among us is this idea of he, him taking up a tent, him, him setting up shop, so to speak, temporarily among us, like a tent would be. A tent is not permanent housing, right? At least for me it would not be. Uh, a, a tent is intended to be temporary to lead to something else. And Jesus, in a grand sense, was with God, and he, for a season, has taken up this tent among us. He, he has taken on this flesh, this body, in this world. He's walking around Jerusalem, talking to people, and he was sent here in this tent of a body to ultimately be put to death and be raised from the dead, no longer a tent, but a permanent temple of God, a place that people can meet with God. And Jesus wanted them to know, I was sent here by God. Like, you better listen to me. Stop just ignoring me and brushing me aside. And I think Jesus would say the same to us today. Stop dismissing me so quickly. Stop just ignoring me and pretending like I'm not important or you don't need to listen to me. But I want you to think of how difficult this would have put yourself in Jesus' shoes, how difficult this would have been to persuade people, to, to get them to realize, oh yeah, you came from heaven. Like, Jesus is not the only person who's ever said stuff, like crazy people say stuff like this. People who are having mental struggles that are going, verging on insanity say things like this. But Jesus is trying to tell them, I was sent by God to this place. I've talked with Chris Jones. I don't know if he's here this morning, but one of our missionaries that that we've sent out a little bit uh, several years ago. He's back home for some surgeries uh, with his family. Um, But I've talked with him and Evie before, and their ministry setting is a tribe in Papua New Guinea that is super primitive, uh, that, that don't really have a concept of almost any common things that we just have as the water we swim in. Uh, and I've heard him talk about how hard it is to ex- explain to them where he's come from. Because all they see is this white dude and this white family just come on a boat uh, down the river, and they don't, no matter what they try to tell them about Indiana or the ocean or a plane or stuff like like they it's almost near impossible for them to understand where they've come from but it doesn't make it less true 
And when Jesus is trying to tell these people, I came from heaven, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but it is true. And you see these signs referenced down uh, at the end of, of uh, this paragraph that when these people are saying, and they actually are starting to believe, and they say, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And I think that's part of this hard concept of Jesus being the Son of God who's been sent into the world. I think that's part of why God had Jesus do this sign after sign after sign, miracle after miracle after miracle, was to show and give validity to the fact that he really was sent by God. And that people better listen to him. He's not just some good teacher with clever skills and, and whatnot, but that he was the Son of God that people ought to be listening to. And there, the, what Jesus was calling for, this need to listen to him, is something we need to be doing today. That we are to listen to Jesus. But also, if you think about just the fact that God sent Jesus into our world, that ought to give us delight to know and confidence to know that God loves us. That God, this whole series we're doing is called Love That Gives. Like, step back and think about this, that God looked, God the Father looked upon our world, looked upon us as sinners, and could have just left us in our, to our devices, could have left us to face death, left us to face his judgment, but he sent his son into the world. He sent Christ to become our savior, to die upon the cross, to be raised from the dead. And so this sending of Jesus, this coming of Jesus into the world ought to give us great confidence that the Lord is for us, that he loves us, that he wants us to be his children. And so you see the effect that Jesus' words start to have on people. It's a really divided effect. Some start to believe in him. Uh, which is amazing. Verse 31, it says that many people start to believe in him. Yeah, we're going to see as we jump to this next half of this passage that that's not the response of all, that there's this opposition that continues to go against Jesus, that, that, that comes against him through the Pharisees and the, um, the chief priests. And so as we switch to the second half of the story, we're going to see Jesus moves from talking about his coming into the world and how we need to listen to him. And he, talks, he starts to talk about this going out of the world, how he's going to leave the world eventually. And it, it, it starts with this section, starts with the Pharisees and the chief priests, them conspiring together because they're starting to hear the crowd. This is in Jerusalem, their capital city. People are starting to say, Maybe he's the Messiah. Like, maybe this is him. And so you can, you can imagine these religious leaders starting to have their, their ire just flared up, their anger uh, just growing in them. And these were not people that worked together normally. I don't know if you realize that or not. Pharisees and chief priests would not have played together typically uh, or done things together. But maybe you've heard the phrase that my enemy, if I can say this correctly, my enemy's enemy is my friend. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Uh, that's happening here. Like they, they are enemies with each other, but they have this common enemy of Jesus who's stealing people away and threatening their place as rulers. And they, they're like, hey, forget it. Let's set aside our differences. Let's arrest Jesus. Let's get rid of this guy. Let's get him out of here. He, he's starting to get people to actually believe him. Can you, can you imagine that? And so they, they conspire to get uh, Jesus arrested and start to put things into action. They even had 
temple police of sorts back then uh, who would help with crowd management and things like that. They're probably seeking to organize them. And Jesus, I don't know if he perceives this, just knows that it's starting to happen supernaturally, but in verse 33, he starts to turn his attention to his leaving from the world. And he says, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You'll seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And Jesus, uh, I, I love this, the confidence with which he speaks. He knows the cross and the resurrection are coming. He has already talked about that. He'll continue to talk about that. But even as he's having these people start to come and try to arrest him, start to try to take him down, he knows it's not going to happen for six more months. But then he, he speaks with such confidence. He says, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. Jesus, he, he's not afraid of these people. He's not nervous that, well, maybe I'm actually going to uh, be sitting in a jail cell six months from now, or I'm going to be laid in a grave six months from now. He knows that on the other side of the crucifixion that he's going to be raised from the dead and that he's going to go back to be with his heavenly father. And he speaks with certainty. He speaks with confidence about it. He knows that's what's coming as well. Not just his death, but his resurrection and his ascension, his going back to be with the heavenly father. And he speaks with such confidence. And I, I can just imagine what sort of effect that would have had on the people who were trying to arrest him. Like, really? Like, you think you can come up against us and, like, you're going to go places we can't find you and you know, that you're going to skirt by this somehow, that you're going you're gonna to escape by this uh, arrest and these things were conspiring against you. But Jesus is 100% confident that someday he's going to ascend to the Father, that six months from now he's going to go outside Jerusalem and he's going to literally go back to heaven to be with his heavenly Father. But I was thinking this week about this, how surprising that may have been to some of these people, though. It said many people had started to believe in him, that he's the Christ, that he's the Messiah. Then he's saying soon, he doesn't exactly say when it is, but he's saying soon, I'm actually going to leave you guys. I'm going to go back to heaven. I'm going to go back to be with my heavenly father. And I could see if there was thinking people among them just thinking, what? Like, the Messiah is supposed to come and make everything right and set up shop in Jerusalem and, and, and get rid of the Romans and make sure everything is functioning fine and be our king, like to, to make things right here on earth. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. But Jesus is saying, I know what the Messiah is supposed to do. I am the Messiah. And I'm telling you, I am going back to my heavenly father. Like he was not confused. He was not misguided. That was the plan from the beginning was for him to come, him to die, to be raised from the dead, and to go back to be with the Heavenly Father. And the, the ascension of Jesus is something we don't often think about. I don't know where we think Jesus is sometimes or what we think happened to him after he was raised from the dead, but he literally has gone back, and at this moment, as we sit here, as I speak, he is at the right hand of God, the Father in heaven literally physically there with him and he I, th I think there's various reasons he did that rather than staying in jerusalem some of these may be speculation but some of these are clear from the word that, that he went back to heaven to be with the father to be able to intercede for us 
to be able to, we have the Son of God right at the Father's ear, like interceding for us, praying for us in ways that I think he might not have been capable of in exactly the same way if he were still here on earth in Jerusalem, if he was still setting up shop, having meetings in Jerusalem at whatever buildings he established and whatever authorities he established. He is with God the Father interceding for us. And I think he ascended into heaven to visibly demonstrate to all of us who have now heard about him, to visibly to the people who are there and to each of us who have now heard that he is the Lord of the entire world, not just of the Jewish people. Like if he would have set up shop in Jerusalem, it would have been very tempting for people to believe that he was just the Messiah for the Jews. That he was just their rescuer, their savior. That's their capital city. But he wanted all people to know, I am the savior of the world. Not just of Jewish people, but of any man, woman, and child who will come to me in faith. I am the Lord of the universe. We'll see next week that one of the reasons he ascended to heaven was so that he might be able to give the Holy Spirit to his people. That's made clear over and over in the Bible, that until Jesus left, the Spirit would not come in the same way to his people. Uh, I'm actually jealous of Pastor Larry to get to preach next week's text, but I will let him preach it, uh, verses 37 and following. Um, But that's a wonderful thing, a benefit that we can't even totally comprehend of Jesus ascending and going back to the Father is that now the Holy Spirit has come to us to live within us and to work through us as God's people. But in thinking of what relevance the ascension of Jesus, the return of Jesus, the going out of Jesus, uh, what it has for us, there's a couple of things I would say. Is that One, I want you to think about your ultimate going out of this world. Like Jesus knew that his death was coming. He knew it was just months away. We often don't have that knowledge given to us of when our death is looming. But every one of us in this room, unless Jesus returns back from that throne he's on in heaven before we die, every one of us will face death. Every one of us will go out of this world, so to speak. And Jesus had confidence that when that time came for him, that he was going to the Heavenly Father that had sent him, that 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 was where he was going. But Jesus makes it clear in verse 34 that some people cannot come there. Did you catch that? He said, you will seek me and you'll not find me where I am. You cannot come. I think in the moment, Jesus very literally meant you can't physically come there. Like you can't just think, oh, I want to be in heaven and poof, be in heaven with God the Father. You physically can't come there. But I think Jesus would say those same words and will say those same words to many people who when death has come and they realize that judgment is coming for their sins now. And they say, I want to be with God. I want to be with him. I regret that I didn't place my trust in Christ. Jesus will say, you cannot come here. Like you rejected me. Like you had opportunity to believe in me. You had opportunity to repent of your sins and trust in me. And you rejected me. And so Jesus makes it clear that, and the Bible as a whole makes it clear that when we face death someday, there are two places that we may go to. There is a hell where God will judge sinners for eternity. And there is a heaven where God will be with his people who are forgiven and can enjoy his presence someday to set up a new kingdom, a new earth with them. And I want you to think about where you are going to go when your time to depart this world comes. 
Jesus knows that each of us left ourselves, we would go to that first place, to hell. But he came and died upon the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead and invites us and says, if you will believe in me, if you will turn from your sin and put your trust in me, you can come be with the Father as well. Like he will receive you, he will forgive you. That is offered to each of us who will come to him in faith. And so I want you to think about that. Where, uh, where will you go when you die? That is a cliche question, but it is important for eternity for you to think about and for you to have an answer to. But in the meantime, in the, in, as we live our life now, I want you to note, though, the, the confidence that Jesus had as he faced hardship, as he faced threats, as he faced sufferings and mistreatment in his, in his life, his confidence of what was going to come eventually, what was going, he was, his return to the Father, it gave him this deep, you can see it, this confidence, this boldness, this courage, to, and this lack of fear of what was going to come to him in the here and now because he knew he was going to return to the Father. And that same knowledge of where we are going to go ultimately can have that impact on us today. As we face hardship, as we face suffering, as we face difficulty or mistreatment, we have this confidence that someday, I don't know what happens between now and then, but I have been told that when I die, when I take my final breath, I am going to be with God. And that gives me confidence to face, face what comes in between. What happens between here and then is to know that my story ends. My story ends by me returning and going to the Father. Me being with Him for eternity. We will, when, I've heard people say variations of this, but when we have been in heaven for five seconds, every suffering we've been through will feel like nothing to us. It felt like it, it was all worth it to endure in my trust of Christ when I see him and I'm with him for eternity. And so knowing what will come, where we will ultimately go, gives us an ability to face the hardships and the struggles that we're in now. This text ends with the Jewish leaders kind of mocking Jesus as he's been talking about where he's going to go, uh, him returning to the one who sent them. Verses 35 and 36 are them kind of mocking him, saying, like, really, where do you think you're going to go that we can't find you? Are you going to go hide somewhere? Are you, they maybe even suggest, oh, you're going to go teach the Greeks? That would have been, like, people they thought were not as important as them, non-Jewish people. You're going to go teach them, Jesus? Like, if we don't give you a hearing here in Jerusalem, are you going to go be their teacher? And they meant it as a mock as a mocking thing, as insults to him. But you see several times in the Gospel of John that sometimes people say stuff and they mean it one way, but they're saying stuff that's more true than they realize. They're, they're saying things that actually are good things, even though they're saying it as a slander. Because after Jesus ascended into heaven, do you know what he did? He gave the Holy Spirit to his disciples and those disciples slowly took the gospel, this message of Jesus, to the Greeks that were in the dispersion, those who were scattered over the world. And then they took it to the Gentile people that were around them. And slowly but surely, God's gospel, this message of Jesus, went into the, all the corners of the world. 
It's, it's, come, it's gone over mountains, it's gone over rivers, it's gone over oceans, it's gotten passed down through centuries and millennia now, and it has come to us. It has come to you. Like Christ has come to you by, by his people and by the, us sharing this word about him. He has come to you and he speaks to you now. And he calls you to listen to him, just like he was calling these people to listen to him. And we ought to be grateful that he has come even to Indiana, that he has come even into 2018. He, he will continue to till he returns someday. And each of us have a response to make of will we believe in Christ? Will we listen to him or will we dismiss him? Will we pay attention to him? Will we trust him as our savior? Will we write him off and ignore him as just another ancient figure? And I think we would be fools if we did the latter. And we would be wise to hear what Jesus said. There's a man, a famous scientist that died this week uh, named Stephen Hawking. Some of you have heard of him. Brilliant man. Uh, smarter than I could ever dream to be. Um, people have compared him with Einstein. Um, famous, famous guy. Um, but he had viewpoints about where we came from as human beings and where we're going. As every person has beliefs about these things. Our core beliefs in us of where do we come from, where are we going. Stephen Hawking believed, and, and many people in our culture believe, that, that this universe and even us, each one of us, are just cosmic accidents. That we just happened because of some big bang that happened a long time ago and then particles have done their thing and slowly life forms developed and those evolved over time and, and somehow I came to be and you came to be and it's all just this random chance. He said that no one created the universe and no one directs our fate. That's where he thought that we came from and that impacts how we live when we don't think that we were created by a God. But in thinking of where we are going, where our lives are headed toward, this is what Stephen Hawking said, very different from what Christ would say. He said, there is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That's how he would compare us, broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. That was his view of where he was going. He, he prior to his death, he thought that he was just a computer that was breaking down and that that was going to cease, his existence was going to cease. And he thought that people like us who believe that, that there's an existence that happens on the other side of death, that we're just believing fairy tales, and that we're fearful people. But I tell you what, I will take Jesus' word over Stephen Hawking's every day of the week. Because he came from God, he knew the truth. That we are, we're not just computers, and we're not accidents. Like we were created by God. We were placed into this world. And our existence does not stop when our brain stops someday. Or when our heart stops beating or our lungs stop breathing. Like we will exist into eternity in one of two places. We'll either go to the Father or we'll go to hell. And Jesus says, you can come and be with the Father. You can be with me. Just put your trust in me. I wish Stephen Hawking would have believed. I wish you would believe in the Son of God. The one who has come to be our Savior. I'm going to